the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, on behalf Team of Detroit, on the hey, we want to present these buffs to our governor, hey, Big Gretch. Hey. Throw them buffs on her face, because that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. Woo. You can find her in the press under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Come on. Big Gretch and this bitch playing no roles. At Excuse all. all the cussing. That's just how I get my flow on. For real. If you want to leave the state, you can stay gone. But right now, Big Gretch said stay home. All that protesting was irrelevant. Big Gretch ain't trying to hear y'all or the president. How we going to take orders from a non-resident? Talking about it safe, but he ain't coming with the evidence. Got him shook now. When it's all over, you invited to the cookout. When it's all over, you deserve to get took out. Big Gretch with the bucks on on the lookout. Uh, and she doing it for Michigan. So when she hit the stand, everybody should be listening. She on their pair of bucks with the ice in them glistening. On behalf of the whole Detroit mission. Throw them bucks on her face. Cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Throw the bust on her face. Cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Big Gretch. Republican vice president. He ran for the presidency in 1960 and looks to be a leading contender for 1968. Hi. You have been publicly feuding with Governor Rockefeller. Of course. Would it be correct to say that you believe he has a big mouth? Uh, not as wide, I would say, as would appear at some times in the American press. Uh, let's go now to Mr. St. Ledger. Continuing with Governor Rockefeller, should he be chosen to run for president in 1968, when will you start campaigning for him? Within 48 hours after his defeat. <laughs> Mr. Van Borey. Sir, if we may make the observation, you seem to be interested in elections of all varieties. Yes, that's correct. Would you care to speculate on who you think will win the Miss Rheingold contest next year? The Senator Goldwater has a... Uh a substantial lead at this point. (laughs) Mr. Swayze. 
When you were vice president, you were on speaking terms with many international leaders. Now, is your relationship with them still today as it's been in the past? Just what it's been in the past. Uh, then have you heard from Mr. Khrushchev lately? I talked to him this morning on the telephone. Oh, uh, really? Uh, where was he calling from? Uh, he had called me from Arizona. <laughs> defected from Russia to the United States, what would you advise we do? Where you have a man who is vigorous, who is articulate, who has been effective, and who is honest, and who has done a good job, you send him back. Department announces that Miss Christine Keeler and Miss Mandy Rice Davies have each applied for entrance into the United States. Uh, of course, they haven't been submitted to us on an official basis. Well, I understand that. What I'd like to know is this. Do you think Keeler and Davies should be admitted into this country? Well, I think it would be very bad for the country for us to go on a big spending spree at this time. <laughs> Sir, may we reminisce about your days in Washington? Of course. I was wondering, is it true that the men's room attendant at the Capitol building used to get only $25 a week salary? But I had, of course, the opportunity to talk to the president, to the secretary of state, to our various ministers in defense, and the other Sir, you spend a lot of time traveling, of course. I believe you just recently returned from England. Uh, very recently. And according to the British press, on your recent tour of England, Sir Anthony Eden is quoted as having described you as a perfect ass. Have you any comment? But that's typical British understatement. <laughs> I'd like to thank you for allowing us this opportunity to speak with you today. You've been most cooperative. Is there anything of yours that we could keep as a memento of this visit? Take California. For our final question, I should like to ask one of a personal nature that deals with your political image. I understand. It has been said by your critics, and I mean that incidentally to exclude us, but it has been said that you sometimes speak and act impulsively uh, without thinking. But I do think. Again, we didn't say that, sir, and many thanks for being with us. But I do think, I do think. There's no question in our minds. It was only hearsay at this. Thank you very much. I would just add this one point. Well, I'm sorry, I'm afraid that's all the time we have right now. But I do think, I do think, I do think, I do think, I do think. Hail to the chief, he's the chief and he needs hailing. He is the chief, so everybody hail like crazy. Hail to that's more or less. Hail to the chief, if you don't, I'll have to kill you. I am the chief, so you better watch your step. My guest this hour is, uh, she lives in the UK. She's from here originally. She uh, 
started out as a ballerina and, and then switched for some reason to writing thriller novels. We're going to find out what that's all about and a lot more. <laughs> she, her new book is uh, Alger Has Framed, a new look at the case that made Nixon famous. Her name is Joan Brady. She joins me now by phone from the UK. Joan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Tom. It's nice to talk to you. I, 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 wa I want to start out, I, obviously I'm fascinated by, uh, by this new book about uh, Alger oh, Hiss, um, and, and I want to get into, because you met him in 1960 and then continued to communicate with him, and I want to talk about how much that, uh, that meeting influenced your decision to write this book, but how do you go from being a ballerina to writing thriller novels? Actually, the trouble with ballet is that it's a bit like being in the army, and you realize you're basically somebody else's paintbrushes. Um, you're not really doing anything yourself. You're following orders. Um, I decided that I wanted to study philosophy. Now, if that doesn't seem like an absurdity in a ballet dancer, <laughs> tell me what does. So I went to Columbia, and from there, then I married a, a writer, and um, you sort of fall into something like that seemed sensible thing to do well you've kind of, your whole life you've been sort of surrounded by writers joan yes that's true your parents were writers uh that's true you have a son that's a writer you married a writer right. you became a writer was that just to fit in <laughs> no not really I, I'm, it was, I'm teasing actually i started out with the idea that i wanted to give my husband an, the idea for a story i had this idea for a short story and I tried to explain it to him, and he said he couldn't get it. He just couldn't get it. I'd have to write it myself. He'd help, so that's how it started. Now, the um, the book, uh, Alger His Framed, um, is, is this a, uh, a historical novel, or is it truly nonfiction? It is truly nonfiction. Every single word of it is true. I mean, it's also available online to anybody to check all of it. And and in it, you, um, uh, well, one of the things that, that I wanted to mention, because I came across this uh, while looking at, at, at your book and, and some of the information surrounding it, um, that this, this case, the Alger Hiss case, was the first televised congressional hearing Actually, it's today is its anniversary. Yeah, the first televised hearing in in nineteen forty many crowds in the United States anywhere. I think. Yeah, and and that was nineteen forty eight, and as you mentioned, the anniversary yeah. is today. Yeah. And and um, of course now you know I, I I don't know how long it will be, but I can actually imagine in the very near future a congressional hearing channel. <laughs> um, but but all kidding aside, in in your book, you explain how Alger Hiss was framed. Was was he absolutely innocent of the charges that he went to prison for? I'm afraid he was absolutely innocent. They were all. It was there were no the charges against him were not about spying or espionage or anything else. They were about, they were perjury. They were perjury, the same sort of way they got, you know, lawyers get people who 
they want for bigger crimes, but um, will perjury will do. You can always imply all this other stuff, and that's what happened with him. You know, he was absolutely innocent. He was the sort of man you would really want in in your government. I don't know. He believed in truth, and he believed in the law, and he believed people were good at heart. He was, <laughs> all of these things were part of the trouble, and that they wouldn't have got him without these beliefs on his part. Now, how did the meeting in 1960 with you and Alger Hiss come about? Well, the guy I finally married was the director of Consumers Union, and Alger, after he got out of prison, he spent three and a half years in prison. And after he got out of prison, he, he they, you know, they'd stripped him of his law degree, and he had no, no way of making money. He stood in lines the way people do. And then he got a job selling women's barrettes. And then he got a job selling paper. And he would call people up, and he would say, this is Alger Hiss, <laughs> and I'd like to sell you some paper. And many people would buy from him, because they could go to a cocktail party and say, guess who wants to sell me paper clips? Uh, paper, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, and one of the people he called was Dexter Masters, the, the guy who became my husband. And Dexter, unfortunately, Consumers Reports had too large a print run for this particular company to uh, handle. So he asked him to dinner instead, and I provided the dinner. Ah. I ah. <laughs> The, the plot thickens, as thriller writers would say. Um, yeah. And during that dinner, was he very comfortable and open about his experience? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. He, was, he was extremely comfortable. His time in prison might as well have been a holiday in Florida. Really? You know, or... Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. Because, I mean, everybody smoked in those days. And this came about because, I mean, his talking about prison came about because he, uh, Dexter offered him a cigarette, and he said, no, thank you, and Dexter said, you don't smoke, and he said, no, 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 I gave up in prison. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can remember being stunned. I never thought he'd be open about any of it, and so I said, why? And he said that, you know, he was one of the few prisoners that had family who would send him things, and they would send him cigarettes, and so he would have to share them out because he was just like that with everybody on all the men on his block and so men would get just one half a cigarette and there'd be fights and he thought it was just much easier to give up smoking altogether i mean he seemed amused at the fact that he couldn't find a better solution but that was all huh that, that is that's that's fascinating how long was he in prison three and a half years 44 months and was that the length of his sentence or the normal no it was he was let off a little early he was his sentence was five years uh which was the maximum and basically i mean he should have gone to a much simpler you know much softer prison he should have gone to danbury but they that uh, because the country was so upset over uh, his trial and the fact that they thought they'd caught a spy Joan, the, I, Joan, I have to put sorry. a comma here. We have a break coming up. Um, can you stand okay. by for a few minutes? Because I want to, I want to continue with dinner with Alger Hiss. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> and uh, we'll be back. My guest is author uh, uh, Joan Brady, who has written a book called 
Alger Hiss Framed. We're going to let our broadcast partner squeeze a few words in edgewise, and we'll be back to talk about dinner with Alger Hiss with Joan Brady <laughs> right after this. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom Attorney General stuff? Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, 
Where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is uh, an, an author uh, from here originally, but uh, lives in the UK. She has a new book called Alger Hiss Framed. Her name is Joan Brady, and uh, many awards for her uh, thriller novels, but this is a nonfiction effort. And uh, before the break, we were talking about Dinner with Alger Hiss. Joan Brady, welcome back to the show, and thanks uh, for spending this time with us today. Thank you. Um, Joan, in the course of, of the dinner, just before the break, we were talking about how casual uh, Alger Hiss uh, was. He, he ended up, uh, because of a sales call, I guess, uh, on, on, at the time, your future husband or, or your husband yep. at the time, and um, he ended up inviting him to dinner, and you prepared the dinner, and now you're sitting down to dinner with Alger Hiss, and he was pretty comfortable about who he was and having served time in prison. Um, what um, were some of the things that, that he revealed um, in, during that first dinner? Did did the the case come up how how does that well, it, come up it did come up it did come up to some degree his his um, companion whom he later married a, a woman called isabel um when we were halfway through the dinner she she sort of introduced it i can't remember quite why or how but she said you know it wasn't a fair trial and he she said trials should be about justice and he said, no, Isabel, trials are about law. And this one, they just didn't happen to get right. I mean, it, but it was, again, done calmly. There was nothing hysterical about it, nothing angry. I mean, nothing of the sort of feeling I'd have had um, or anybody else I could think of would have. It was just the way things were. When when he first talked about it and, and uh, you know, made claims of innocence how could you he never he never he never said anything about being innocent it was just assumed that anybody who knew him knew it i mean really? isabel would say so you know they condemned and they they put away an innocent man but he would he didn't use words like that is it be, do you why why wouldn't he um do you think it's because that's what they all say Partly. I think one of the things, the reasons he got along very well in prison was that he more or less allied himself with the mafia prisoners, and they knew a setup when they saw one. Uh, and I think most people just, either they accepted that he was innocent or didn't care. I mean, Dexter didn't care, couldn't care one way or another, and I didn't care until many years later. It just didn't interest us for some reason. I mean, I, it seems odd, but it didn't. Now, did you become friends socially? I, yeah. 
I, I read oh, yes, something we, about... I knew him for 30 years, and um, I mean, he was a friend for 30 years. He came to visit us in England, and we visited him in New York, and, you know, it was it was a friendship. At, at what point did it become a book in your mind? Oh, God, I got myself into trouble, into some legal trouble, and I was actually faced with prison, uh, or threatened with it, and I didn't know anybody else who'd ever been in such a situation before except him, and he was long dead by then. So I looked into the case, and I, I was really so shocked to find it so absolutely transparent. I mean, that's the thing that's stunning about it, is that it's just transparent, and it's all out there on the net. You, anybody can see that it's transparent. It's, that's what's so odd about it. It's a case of the emperor's new clothes. You just have to look. And the legal trouble that you got into was basically, if if I remember correctly, you had basically tried to fight City Hall over yeah. something. Uh, a, a, uh, well, I was being poisoned. I didn't like that. It was a water problem, wasn't it? No, it was it was volatile organic compounds. They're called. It was a shoe factory that was leaking its glues into oh. my house. Oh. And unfortunately, the council was involved, so you know they didn't like my objections, and uh, so they prosecuted me, and that was when I was threatened. And this it doesn't sound like much but it and it actually i suppose and compared to alger's situation it isn't anything it was a boring little local case with you know a council that didn't want to be uh, held to its own standards and was afraid that i might you know reveal something what well and and when you say that it it really didn't amount to anything it it got to be a pretty big deal <laughs> no it was a very big deal in in your yeah, life it and me. in the way that it played out and and ended up because didn't didn't you end up suing and and winning a lawsuit i did i did i i won i'm that's another great difference between alger's case and mine uh, i won um it took eight years, though. Can you believe it? I mean, eight years to win this thing. And and and, I was, and that's a thing that you describe as a fairly small thing compared to Alger. Oh, yes, it's very thing. small compared now, to what happened with him. I mean, it's very small. And it was local, whereas his was actually nationwide. I mean, he, the newspaper headlines were, there were screamers across the, across the country for months and months and months. It was the trial of the century. And Alger Hiss, um, when you started looking into a situation, did you get a sense that, that he really tried to defend himself at all? Oh, yes, he did try to defend himself, but he was a corporate lawyer, basically. You know, he was interested in legal contracts and government contracts. I mean, he had a very... He, he was, in effect, the first organizing... He was the first Secretary General of the United Nations. He organized it. This was a man of some yeah. importance, um, and then he was the um, director, director president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. These were important things to be, but it was a contract lawyer's um, job, and he had never even seen a jury. He had no idea that a jury 
a jury trial or even a congressional trial when they were trying to get him for a crime was different. You know, he didn't realize that basically it's theater. It's not, you know, gentlemen in a room discussing something rationally. It's theater. And he didn't get it. And and I and I wonder if that made um, made him take his defense a little less seriously. Oh no, no! I think he took it very seriously, but he just didn't. I mean, he hired corporate lawyers to defend him. I mean, a corporate lawyer. And if actually the first the hearings, the one we're celebrating, so to speak, today, you couldn't have a lawyer, or you, you could have a lawyer with you, but the lawyer couldn't um, say anything. They, there were no rules of cross-examination. The committee could say anything it wanted, ask any question it wanted, interrupt any statement it wanted, and all of that would go in the record. You had nothing. These were rich witch trials. They really were. And, and, and let's let's see if we can describe that a little bit for for listeners. The uh, the case against Alger Hiss and and the role that Richard Nixon played in it. Well, Nixon was, at the time, a very junior congressman. He had just won his seat in California, and he'd done it with red-baiting. He was sort of the discoverer of the idea of red-baiting. And when he got into Congress, um, the House Un-American Activities Committee, which is the one that had Alger in front of it, or that Alger demanded to go in front of, was really on the way out. They were trying to get rid of it. It spent some money, and it didn't bring in anything except trouble, and it hurt people, and people were getting bored with it. Um, But Nixon saw an opportunity, and that is really what Alger became for him, was a scapegoat for all of this upset he'd been creating. I mean, he he was the one who inspired McCarthy. That was what McCarthy came from. The, from Nixon, not before. I mean, he was afterwards. I think a lot of people don't quite realize that. Yeah, the Un-American um, Activities Committee was uh, not really such a big deal until it went on television, which started with Alger Hiss. Well, it had, it had a bit of a... You, you can't quite dismiss it so quickly as that, because it had put away ten um, Hollywood writers... It hadn't actually, they hadn't, the committee itself hadn't put them away. They had been declared in contempt of Congress, because Congress had been persuaded by Nixon to bring out these contempt charges. And all they had done was to refuse to answer questions about their friends. Were these friends, you know, tell us about your friends who are communists. What about this one? What about that one? Are they communists? And they said they, they would not reply. They call themselves the Committee of the First Amendment because the Fifth implies you've done something wrong. The First, they felt it was freedom of speech. You could, you had the freedom to stay silent. And when they came up with Alger, his feeling was that a matter of principle was involved here and that somebody had to stand up to it, and he demanded that he be able to answer the charges against him. And what were the charges exactly? Well, what people did was just to name other people. I mean, that was the whole point of the committee. You named names. And one of their uh, informants was a guy called Whitaker Chambers, who uh, got into the committee. Was He was summoned to the committee, and he gave out 
names of a number of people, one of them being Alger. And so Alger came back from his holiday to find that he had been named in the New York Times as a communist and the leader of a communist cell within the government. And his friends said, just let it lie. You know, leave it alone. If you just leave it alone, it'll go away, which most people did. I mean, other people didn't volunteer, or demand, but no, not Alger. He was going to show them, and he was going to stand up for his principle. And he, was, he demanded that they allow him to answer these charges under oath. And that's how the whole thing started. And, which and, seems and how did it turn into to real actionable charges on which he could be sent to prison? Well, it took the four, it took the four hearings... Um, I mean, this, the one that be, that's the anniversary is today began with the chairman saying, as a result of this hearing, one of these two men will be ch- tried for perjury. It didn't happen. Um, nobody got tried for perjury as a result of the hearing that was televised. But Alger dared Whitaker Chambers to state these charges in public. See, one of the troubles with these hearings is they were privileged. You couldn't sue somebody for saying anything in these hearings. The newspapers reported it because it was leaked. But you couldn't sue anybody for it because of the privilege. So what what Chambers did was to state it um, on a, a radio program. He did say there was no spying involved and things like that, but he, he did say that Alger was a communist. So Alger sued him. And, I mean, this is... What kind of a spy could do anything like that? I mean, that's so absurd. But that was how it got involved with a legal situation because of the suit that Alger brought. I mean, he brought so much down of this on himself, the first being um, insisting that he'd be able to deny this, the second being the suit. And during the course of the the suit in in, uh, the discovery phase, Um, Chambers brought forth some papers that he said that Alger had given him for transmission to the Soviets. These were sent to the Justice Department, which said, as Alger had said when he saw them, that the Soviets couldn't possibly be interested in these, and there was nothing there that was the basis of anything. So that having failed... um, Whitaker Chambers comes up with the idea of this pumpkin, which I think is so insane that, anyway, he said he had this pumpkin, and in this pumpkin were films that proved that Alger was a communist and a spy. Um, So midnight um, investigation of Whitaker Chambers' farm and this pumpkin that... I mean, it was the middle of winter and a killing frost, the pumpkin, but there was the pumpkin, nice and plump, and an arrow of squashes pointing to it. And the HUAC investigators went out with their lanterns and they took two reels of film and three canisters of film out of the pumpkin. And those became the, these Nixon declared were proof of the greatest treason history, treason Conspiracy, treason conspiracy in American history. Well, the two reels were dismissed in the first um, sitting of the grand jury as completely meaningless. And Nixon refused to give up three canisters 
on the grounds that everybody in the Justice Department was obviously a commie. Uh, and I mean, there were days of press conferences, but he kept these things himself. And nobody saw them until uh, 20 years later, 20-odd years later, in the, um, with the Freedom of Information Act. And they came out to be pages from maintenance manuals at the public sh- on the public shelves of the Bureau of Standards Library. Where did the films come from? Who made these films? Chambers. I mean, he got the idea out of a Soviet spy film that he'd seen. He, he says so on his website. Really? Yeah, I mean, all of this stuff, as I say, it's all out there in the public for anybody to see. You just have to put the pieces together, which is rather fun. Now, in the, in this day and age, if, if someone were wrongly accused and spent time in prison and was later proved to be innocent, there would be some basis for lawsuit or, or compensation Right. Was any of that ever done in oh, yes. Alger Hiss's lifetime? Oh, yes. Alger, Alger tried again and again and again. One appeal after another. I mean, there was one appeal, I, I can't remember them all, but one of them came up in front of, you know, a Nixon appointee. And the, it's, it's the um, appeal of the appeal came up against the same appointee. And this went all the way through to the Supreme Court. I mean, it was an amazing thing. There was the oldest serving member of the Supreme Court, a guy called William O. Douglas, said that there was not any possibility that any court in any land could uphold this verdict. And yet the Supreme Court itself did. Uh, this, I mean, this is just so incredulous. It's, I it's agree. almost impossible to believe. Um, and, and yet we've seen it in a number of different yeah. Cases. Um, there are family members who live near where we do our show from, of uh, Sam Mud, that are still trying to get their ancestors' name cleared. Uh, yeah. G- Gary Powers suffered uh, tremendously yeah. in his lifetime. The U two pilot, if you're familiar yeah, with that you. story, but um, but but this one. They're they're just. How was Alger his picked? Was was there something oh, he about himself, him? You see. Was there something I mean, about he, him that made him an ideal patsy? Or did oh he, yes, he was a member of the State Department, and there was this first hearing during which Nixon sort of Nixon figured out he could beat the guy, and they, he wanted a big profile somebody. He he wasn't. Uh, I've had various people suggest various other ones that were um, proposed as scapegoats, but Alger was just you mean even was back, a Boy Scout. Even, even back then, Joan, uh, Richard Nixon had a list? Oh, well, it wasn't <laughs> Nixon's, but, uh, yeah, but you're quite right. Yes, he did, and he was so clever. He, re- he was a brilliant man. He, he really was, I agree. And this, this was just... And he was really, he worked very hard on this. And he, as he said, I had to leak stuff all over the place. And, you know, I had the guy convicted before he ever got to the grand jury. He, it was an astonishing thing that he did. And he was a gambler, just like Trump, as well as, a, as, a, as an actor. And he knew how to play an audience. And Alger hadn't a clue uh, about audiences and theater and 
So, uh, so Alger Hiss was picked virtually by his title. Yeah, I mean, it was a better thing to, you know, to get high-profile people, to, you know, to tickle high-profile people and see if any of them would fall. And they did, I mean, it wasn't that Alger was alone by any matter of means. There were many, many, many State Department members were listed. And you see, these lists would come out, and that's all there was. There wasn't, there wasn't a charge except, you know, what the witness had said. There wasn't a proper charge brought. It just, here was this witness who said he's a communist. And that was it. And it, with many people, it ruined many, many lives. These names would come out, and these people would lose their jobs, and there were suicides. And I mean, it was a dreadful, dreadful business. Alger, yes, um, had no history of being a communist or, or, as they used to say back in the day, a communist sympathizer? Absolutely none. And the, the um, FBI had thousands tens of thousands of pages of them. They've destroyed a large part of them. But the ones that remain, something like 40 or 50,000 pages, make it perfectly clear. I mean, Senator Moynihan looked through them. He could find only, I think, that they had got some information about the bomb and that Priscilla Hiss had been a member of the Women's Coalition of Shoppers or something. That was all they could find. That was it. Did, and, go ahead. Did, did Nixon ever acknowledge in any of his writings or public or private comments that as to whether he actually believed Alger Hiss was a communist or that he made it up or, or any of that? I don't think he ever... Well, we have that 18 minutes that's missing, and it's entirely possible that's what's there. I mean... Uh, <laughs> John Dean said that uh, he'd said, you know, you have to, uh, the, the typewriter is always the key. We built one in the Hiss case. That's gone. Um, nobody, except for John Dean's comment. I think it really was, to Nixon, a terribly important thing. It did put him on the national stage. It did put him on en route to uh, the Oval Office. This was what made him president. It, and guilt or innocence made no difference. Oh, goodness, to Nixon? Goodness, no. I mean, he said there was one, when he ran in California to get his seat, he ran against a guy called Jerry Voorhees. And he had this campaign, a telephone campaign, and people would call up saying they were the Liberty Bell or something like that. Did you know that Jerry Voorhees is a communist? I mean, this was a telephone campaign. And in his tapes, he does say, I never thought Jerry Voorhees was a a communist. He was one of the most decent human beings I ever met. But I had to win. That's the thing you don't understand. I had to win. This, uh, Joan, we're coming up on another break in about a moment, and and I was yeah. wondering, can we can we get you to stick around a little bit longer? Yeah, sure. I I really appreciate it. I this is a fascinating story, and I suspect that it has implications that that are as important today as as they are to the history of of this event um and and i want to try and get into some of that with you if i can but we do need to take yeah. a short break here my guest is joan brady she's written a book called alger hiss framed a new look at the case that made nixon famous for those of you listening to us on 92.1 fm 
We're going to uh, break away, let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in edgewise. And for those of you streaming at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have a few words for you as well. And then we'll be back with more words from Joe. <laughs> Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice. Vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage? Basketball or soccer? So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov slash vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, these days, price swings of 30 or 48 cents per gallon aren't unusual. But when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. 
Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time. But when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop attorney generaling. We got a concert to get to. I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nussel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash AG. Put those away. We're at a gas station. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is the author of a new book called Alger Hiss Framed, a new look at the case that made Nixon famous. Her name is Joan Brady. She joins me now from the U.K. Joan, welcome back, and thanks for being so gracious and, and doing the whole <laughs> hour you. with no us. No problem at all. Um, Joan, in the... Uh, yeah, before the break, we were we were talking about uh, Nixon's uh, impact on on framing Alger Hiss and and what his uh, motivations were and and so on. But during the uh, during the last segment, you made reference to the fact that a lot of the information about Alger Hiss's innocence was all over the internet, was very readily available. Yet you say a new look at the case that made Nixon famous. What's the new part? What's what's new in in this treatment? What were you able to find? Well, I think part of the thing is that nobody's looked at this evidence. You have to look at evidence to make some sense of it, and nobody has looked at it. It's there, easily, readily available for anybody, but you have to be interested. And the interest in the case has long ago died down. Um, and it was a sort of resurgence uh, when a few books came out about, um, you know, about Alger and the Soviets, the idea being that he had somehow or other, uh, he was proven to be a spy by Soviet archival material. This is a complete no- piece of nonsense. Um, I mean, it's quite extraordinary that you would assume that if he had been this great spy. There'd be something in the FBI files, but we've already established that there was none of that. And the first person when there was, when Glasnost happened in the late 1980s uh, uh, in, and in 1991, Richard Nixon himself wrote to a guy called General Volkovanov to ask if he had any material on Alger Hiss. What year Nobody was else. that, John? Sorry? What year was that? 1991. And the general wrote back, having asked his, you know, he had uh, several people to um, research this material. He wasn't the sort of guy who went into the archives himself. He was an important man. He was the defense advisor to, uh, the, the, to, to Yeltsin at the time. Um, so he wasn't going to be going into into archives, even for a one-time president. So he had he had a guy called Primakov, who had a staff in the archives, and Primakov spent his time and looked into this thing. They found nothing. But the thing that's interesting about this is that there is no record of what happened in terms of... I mean, there's great record in terms of the request. Mm-hmm. That's known quite well. But there's no, no, no indication of what the general wrote back. The following year, Alger's lawyer wrote the same general 
and through a sort of an odd set of confusions, the request ended up with a guy called um, Kobyakov, another general and another archival expert who had his his um, team look into this and found absolutely nothing. He said he says he will eat his hat if anybody proves to the contrary. But because the case had been General Volkovanovus, Volkogonov's, he turned it over. And the general, General Volkogonov, wrote to Alger and said, there is nothing for you to worry about. There is nothing here. And so this had been, there had been two researches into this right there. And it kept going on. I mean, when other people asked, it was, was viewed in the, and it wasn't viewed at all in Russia. I mean, nobody had ever heard of Alger Hiss in Russia, despite the fact he's supposed to have been a prize asset for a decade. <laughs> it's just absurd. And the guy that they all rely on is a guy called Alexander Vasiliev, who was brought in because Crown Publishers made an arrangement with the KGB, who were having trouble with their pension fund, who isn't, and they needed some money. So they said they would allow um, a journalist some access to some private, you know, some secret information if, you know, if they turn over some cash. So the arrangement was made, and Vasiliev, who had been a KGB uh, operative and was a journalist, was hired to look at these documents that were presented to him in the press office in Moscow. He didn't go into the archives at all. It's very hard to get permission. And he was, was interesting because there was a, he got involved in a, a libel suit against um, the... A, a man who had written that his research was ridiculous, all of it. And so he got into a libel suit with this man, as John Lowenthal, who was Alger's lawyer. And because England is much, much easier on people who sue for libel, he sued here uh, in England. And the high court judge, his name was Edie, brought down, they, they listened to the information, they listened to try it was a full jury trial, and he lost. This is a huge landmark thing for England, too, because, I mean, libel brought him in lots of money. But no, he lost, and he swore on the stand that nothing, he had found nothing to indicate that Alger was a spy or any relationship to spying, which is exactly what the generals had said, and exactly what several other people have said, I mean, several other important Soviet um, or Russian um, authorities, including a, a couple of history professors who say it's an obvious case of fabrication. There is nothing. Joan, the, when you took the, the new look at the case that made Nixon famous, um, were there things that, that jumped out of this story that, that reminded you of things going on contemporarily? Well, certainly the fake news. <laughs> this is something Excellent. that Nixon actually, he must, I don't know whether he actually invented it, but goodness did he use it. I mean, it was extraordinary what he did in terms of just making up stuff and leaking it to the papers. And you can't really blame the journalists. It was, he was a member of this committee. He, he was, was a duly elected member of Congress. 
he was an authority in the government, and he leaked this stuff. They took it. Of course they did. And also he told a very good story, and Alger was boring. Um, and there's, I think there's also the fact that you had you had the same situation. I know that it sound, it, it, there was a, a, the class war thing, too, that you have now. It was definitely, I mean, Nixon was a poor boy from Whittier. And it showed. Yeah, he famously and, referred to himself as a cloth coat Republican. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Joan, I, this is such a fascinating conversation, I, and I wish we had more time. But I do want to take uh, just, just the last couple of minutes that we have and ask, what's next for you? Will you be debunking the uh, charges against Benedict Arnold? <laughs> no, I'm dead having eight fathered eight children. I assumed he'd been hanged. He <laughs> uh, there's, there's a joke that goes with that, but I'm leaving it alone. Um, Joan, where can people find out more about this story? Obviously, the book is a great place to start. Alger Hiss Framed, a new look at the case that made Nixon famous. Um, but what, what are we some... We have a website. Okay. It's algerhissframed.com. That's easy. Yeah, that's not hard to remember, and it, it gives you all, I mean, you've got all the facts are there on the thing. You can see for yourself where they, you know, where they came from, what is clear and what isn't clear. You know, it's very straightforward. Now, I, and, and I, I just, I can't help wondering if it ever occurred to you to call the book The Spy Who Came to Dinner. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a good title. I should have it. I've kind of thought of doing it as a novel but you know at first the trouble is it's so much of it is so fantastical like that pumpkin that you can't really it, it, people just wouldn't believe it i couldn't see an, it getting past a uh you know a <laughs> you can, fiction editor you can't make this stuff up <laughs> yeah that's the thing joan you're an absolute delight to talk to best of luck with the book what is next for well, you thank you i don't really know if you've got any suggestions, I'd like to hear them. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give it some thought, and if I come up Thank with you. something, I will pass it along. Thanks so much for spending this time with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was uh, Joan Brady. She is... Uh, uh, actually, she lives in the UK. She's from here originally. Uh, she is the uh, she's won many awards for her writing and for her novel, her thriller novels. But this is a nonfiction book that she's penned uh, called Alger Hiss Framed: A New Look at the Case That Made Nixon Famous. Now, normally on uh, on Fridays uh, during the eleven o'clock hour, we try to go to. Uh, uh, live local music and uh, we're gonna do something a little different we're gonna stay with the live local music theme and we're gonna talk to some organizers of an event that uh, is going on over in Durand and uh, it's to benefit um, Durand area veterans and and I think you're gonna find the story uh, very interesting <laughs>
Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 